Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, made significant headlines in 2003, testing our global public health infrastructure. Since then, we have seen dramatic evidence to suggest that bats were the original animal host for the virus. The most recent data coming from a synthetic SARS-like bat coronavirus. How does our ability to synthesize complex viruses like this one enhance our capacity to deal with threatening pathogens? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. Our guest is Dr. Mark Dunnison, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Dennison. Uh, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Dr. Dennison, when did your team begin its research on this project? We've been working on coronaviruses for about 20-some uh, years, and with the SARS uh, epidemic, of course, that uh, raised uh, the profile and importance of the viruses in the, in the public mind. And so we've been working on them for a long time. We began work on SARS very soon uh, after the epidemic. And you originally were dealing with bats. Were other species uh, considered? No. Uh, well, when the SARS outbreak occurred, there was, of course, consideration of the animals that were being sold in the markets, uh, strange animals to us, uh, like civet cats and raccoon dogs. And those animals were looked for and found to carry the virus, but in the wild, they did not have the virus. And so investigators in China began surveillance of other animals. Fill us in a little bit. When you say sold in the market, and I know you're not speaking about the United States, obviously, what do you exactly mean by that? Well, these were animals that were farmed, uh, like chickens are farmed here, to be sold for food in the markets there. And they're exotic to us, but they were uh, commonly sold in these markets, and they were open markets where animals might be stacked in cages. And so it's thought that they probably were infected in the markets, but since they couldn't be identified in the wild, therefore they began to look in other places for how those animals could have gotten infected in the markets. Now, one of these animals were bats? Well, no, there were no bats sold, but bats were being considered because it's like, uh, it's like Casablanca where you round up the usual suspects and uh, people are looking for bats because it's thought that it might be involved with Ebola and several other recent outbreaks of human epidemic viruses such as Nipah and Hendra viruses. And so bats were a suspect and they were looked for. As I understand it, that bat coronavirus hadn't been cultured before, is that correct? Correct. Uh, one of our main motivations was that, in fact, um, these viruses had been looked at by an unusual mechanism, which was culturing bat secretions, particularly rectal secretions, in bats, and they identified sequences consistent with coronaviruses, but none of these viruses could ever be cultivated in any of our available tissue culture cell lines and so could not be studied further for their growth or replication or transmission between animals. Now tell us about this virus. Well, it's probably not one virus. In, in fact, um, when they began to look in bats, they identified probably more than 20 new coronaviruses in bats. None of the bats were sick. Uh, they were just shedding them, suggesting that bats may be a reservoir for all kinds of coronaviruses, particularly even may have been the source of ones that have, have led to colds and other things in humans and in other domestic animals. So there was no single virus, and when we started the work, we began to look at actually multiple viruses to see which ones were closest to what SARS looked like. Now, when you use the word coronavirus, I have to think back on my immunology days in uh, medical school. <laughs> what, what exactly is that? Well, coronavirus... 
coronaviruses are a family of viruses that contain RNA as their genetic material. They're the largest RNA viruses in terms of their genetic information. They're a family. They're named for the corona or crown of proteins. They look like an eclipsed sun, and so they're, thus they're named for the, the sun and not for the beer. <laughs> now, why, as common colds are, are caused by certain coronaviruses, what is it about this specific coronavirus that makes it so deadly in bats? Not in bats, but as bats transmit them. It really became a deadly human virus. It's not really clear that it actually causes any disease in bats. And I think what it, it did is, is it jumped species and then adapted. It entered into humans, and it, it truly was, to all the data we have, a new human virus. And so if you can imagine a, a new influenza or a new measles virus, if there was something new that humans had never seen before, it represented, therefore, a highly pathogenic virus in humans. Are there certain genetic components to transmission? The main genetic component probably is the spike glycoprotein, which is on the surface of the virus, which binds to specific receptors on a host cell and allows the virus to get in and then to spread from cell to cell. And can we predict who among the general population might be more vulnerable to this? It's not clear at all, and our data does not yet answer the question of how the virus initially got into humans. It's likely that it, it was a recombination event, so it may have been a bat virus co-infecting somehow a human under unusual or extraordinary conditions, and that there was a recombination event between those two viruses that then gave the bat type virus the ability to then spread in human cells or animal cells, one or the other or both. How would the bat virus get to a human at all? Well, I can imagine lots of potential strategies. Um, bat uh, secretions in animals in the markets, animals getting infected with a high dose of virus, sort of shoving it into a cell or into a host, which allowed it then to temporarily replicate. And then if humans ingested that animal that might have allowed it then to survive. That's one potential scenario. Another would be a direct contact with bat secretions, inhalation, or a, a bite, although I don't want to begin thinking about vampires at this point. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Mark Dennison, Professor of Pediatrics and Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine. We're discussing new data that adds to our understanding of the origins of the SARS virus. Dr. Dennison, how specifically does this research further our capacity for identification, analysis, and even public health response to emerging viral threats? One of the great limitations, in, in our opinion, with uh, our ability to respond is that uh, many viruses, other known human viruses, for example, hepatitis C even, cannot be readily cultivated in, in cells. And so regular approaches to studying antivirals or vaccines aren't effective because we can't grow the viruses. So in the case of a new emerging virus, for example, if there was an outbreak and you could identify the source by sequencing, the type of strategy we used might allow for rapid replication or reproduction of the virus to grow it in standard culture so that it could then be studied for vaccines and therapeutics. Why is it so difficult uh, to, to grow some of these viruses? Well, there may be several reasons. One example would be that, since, as I mentioned, the spike protein has to bind to receptors so that a virus coming out of bats 
just fresh out of the animal or even out of an initially infected human might not have a good ability to bind to the cell and enter the cells that are used in culture for standardly growing the virus. And so that would be a, a, a real limitation to it being able to grow. Did any animals who might have come in contact with the bats get sick? Well, not very. Um, there wasn't much evidence that the, any of the animals were very ill. We don't, of course, know of animals that died. They weren't tracked. Uh, but, but um, And experimentally in the laboratory, many animals could be infected with SARS virus, but few of them got ill. So there were few models in animals where they actually got sick. Why would that be? Why would the human be so susceptible? It's not clear that the human initially was so susceptible, but coronaviruses have perhaps a unique capacity among RNA viruses for adaptation and mutation, so rapid change. Of course, with any virus, virulence or severe disease may not be the goal of the virus, but that may allow it to more rapidly spread in some circumstances. Are we learning more about the mechanism by which SARS actually causes lung damage in humans? Uh, we think we are. Um, there's my collaborator, particularly Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who was the uh, an absolute co-partner in this. This was a very joint disease. Are studying how the virus adapts using a mouse model where SARS, um, if it's passaged in mice, very rapidly adapts and becomes virulent in the mouse and therefore can be studied for those mechanisms. And just review for a second, what is the uh, natural history of SARS when a human gets it? Well, the natural history of SARS when humans got it was that they probably developed a disease that may have been initially actually a systemic, more of a systemic disease, and then actually at 7 to 10 days had onset of severe respiratory disease looking like ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome that led to much of the morbidity and mortality. How many uh, patients uh, would you guess that you've personally dealt with? With SARS, none, because it was implicated mainly in, in China. Of course, it spread to 32 countries over the period of about four to six weeks. And so the real um, severity of this was focused in a couple of places, Hong Kong and Toronto, where this this really had significant impact. Did we have any in the United States at all? There were uh, several cases. In fact, there was one in, in Chapel Hill, that, in North Carolina, uh-huh. but that was an imported case from someone that had traveled. So there was never endemic disease. If I could make one point about Please. this, it's not even clear to us that SARS will ever reemerge because there were a couple uh, real limitations on the virus. For example, its ability to spread required symptomatic disease, and so efforts at quarantine were very effective. So it's likely that SARS may have been eradicated, but one of our goals is to try to say that there are other bad coronaviruses, and we would want to be able to understand how it became a human virus. So if this happened again with a SARS-like virus, we would be prepared for it. Are you pretty confident in terms of that statement that the SARS may not uh, actually come back again? Um, Let's see. (laughs) My wife says I'm always confident and I'm sometimes right. Um, (laughs) Smart woman. So um, I think the the answer is there's no evidence that there's any naturally circulating SARS at this time. So I would say no, I'm not 100% confident, but uh, thus another reason to be prepared to understand how it would spread and evolve over time. How did the virus uh, get eradicated to that degree? Well, I I think there were two Achilles heels that SARS had. One, as I mentioned, was that it appeared to require symptomatic disease for efficient spread. 
and so that if you isolate symptomatic individuals, you could dramatically drop its transmission, as opposed to influenza, which spreads pre-symptomatically mostly, and so it's very hard to quarantine and control flu. The second one would be that the reproduction number or the number of people ultimately on average that got infected by a single SARS-infected person was fairly low, and so with those two issues, it's likely that quarantine and public health measures could be very effective at controlling and ultimately getting rid of an epidemic of circulating virus in humans. How good was the quarantine? Well, it was one component, and in some places it was effective to the extent, for example, in Toronto when it was initially initiated, it blocked it, and then when that was let up, what ended up being prematurely, there seemed to be a reemergence of the virus. And, and then when it was reinstituted, they got it back under control. So there was good evidence that public health, institution of public health measures, was effective in helping to control the virus. Now, I believe, and if I'm understanding correctly, that China is generally considered to be the source of this outbreak? Uh, I think that's correct. In, in the Guangdong province, uh, and where these markets occurred, was the real epicenter and Hong Kong was with a physician, actually, an ill physician who traveled from Guangdong province to Hong Kong and became ill. That became then the, the focus or the nidus for the, uh, the transmission of the virus worldwide. You mentioned uh, Toronto. Uh, how many cases were in Toronto? You know, I don't know. Um, I don't off the top of my head remember that number, but I know that it was substantial and there was substantial involvement of, of healthcare workers. And so that, of course, it had a major impact on that city and their sense of, of vulnerability to this type of emerging, you know, the potential epidemic or pandemic disease. Why do you think that we really did avoid here in the United States uh, a significant pandemic? Well, there were probably several factors. One was the vigilance. One happened was that just not enough people in the right location had enough severe disease to then sort of nucleate a, an outbreak or an epidemic in any particular locale. But the CDC also, to credit, had profound, they, they really instituted very excellent surveillance and, uh, and control measures for any case that came into the United States. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Mark Dennison. We've been discussing new research that enhances our understanding of the origins of the SARS virus. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. And thank you for listening.